Jupiter at opposition, some meteor showers in the observer's calendar for November 2023 on episode 369 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky, and this podcast is for everyone who enjoys going out under the stars. So uh, I have a correction, Shane. It was Bob who sent me the link for the uh, Zoom.Earth uh, mm. link. Yeah, last week he sent me, he was like, yeah, I was the person who sent that to you. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, cool. yeah. Uh, during our episode where we talked a little bit about some of the tools or resources we use for, uh, you know, understanding the weather and seeing if we'll be able to do some astronomy. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. So, and then he sent this great image of M31. Mm-hmm. You saw that as well. Really nice. Yeah, it's beautiful. There. Yeah. The, uh, like M31 can be challenging to image, I think, from what I, the limited amount of uh, knowledge I have around astrophotography. Um, it's kind of tough, like to expose uh, enough, you know, li- or get enough light in to see some of the detail, like, you know, in the dust lanes and away from the nucleus, um, but not overexpose the nucleus or central section of the galaxy. And I think he did a great job to balance that here. Yeah, I know. It looks really good. I was looking at the dark lanes in M31 the other night. Right on. Yeah, Mike had his uh, 12-inch telescope out, and we took a, a long look, which was kind of like weird in a way because we had all this aurora, so the sky was a little bit brighter than the last time we looked at it. And the last time we looked at it, I can't say that I noticed the rings or the bands. They almost looked like uh, sort of like the rings of Saturn in a way, just like very, 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 very faint when you're looking through the uh, the telescope. Yeah, you know, the the amount of times I've looked at M31, which is an awful lot, um, the amount of times I've been able to see like nice detail within those dark lanes or the dust lanes, um, you know, the percentage isn't very high. Like you really Mm -hmm. do need the right conditions for those to jump out. And when they do, it's incredible because then it almost looks photographic. But a lot of nights, it's just a big, you know, quite big uh, fuzzy oval, uh, at least to me. Um, uh, You know, I I don't know what triggers the ability to see some of that detail, but it's not always there. Yeah, we're using that uh, 17 millimeter um, Explore Science 92 degree that... uh, Man, that thing is an awesome eyepiece, let me tell you. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, everything you've said about it sounds like it's uh, a definite winner, one one to keep in the case. Yeah, I'm really surprised I don't go on too much before we get to what we are going to look at this month. But, uh, you know, it's, it's about the largest eyepiece you can get. It's, you know, not quite three pounds, but two and three quarters pounds. And, uh, you know, it's uh, sort of big and gainly and but it has this great trick where you can look at it wearing eyeglasses and uh, it's just such a porthole uh, into space, you know, as the saying goes, it mm-hmm. really is uh, something else to use. So yeah, it's become almost like the go-to eyepiece, you know, for, for observing. Yeah. Well, that's good. You know, and that's the right focal length for a lot of telescopes, kind of that mid range. Um, so, you know, even in my kit, like those 18 millimeter ish eyepieces really get a lot of use. Mm. yeah i didn't i i really wasn't sure how much i would use it because it is so big and uh and a little bit awkward to kind of swap in and out but it gets used a lot <laughs> i'll put mm-hmm. it that way yeah mm-hmm. yeah it definitely gets it definitely gets its trials so this uh this coming month in november we've got uh the moon pairing with the uh, venus saturn 
Neptune, Jupiter, Uranus, and then uh, M45 at the end of the month there. So November 3rd, this is uh, Jupiter's opposition. Um, So have you, have you been able to get out and get some Jupiter observing in at all, Shane, or? Yeah, yeah, I have. Uh, not so much recently, but earlier in the Jupiter season, I, I had some good observations. It was a little low on the horizon at that time, so I shouldn't say like wonderful views. Um, the atmosphere was kind of messing around with me. But uh, yeah, I've been able to look at it, and it's well positioned for us here where we're located in North America. It's almost going like straight overhead, which is wonderful. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. And I've taken the odd glance at it I haven't been really doing that much Jupiter observing because uh well frankly the conditions have been so good just for for deep sky that uh I've been focused on on that it seems like in the past several years the conditions for deep sky haven't been as good but this this autumn they've just been so so great for deep sky and the other night I was looking at it, it was kind of like this the, the stability hasn't been as good uh, this autumn but the skies have been very clear and, and transparent so uh, power is under, I don't know, I've been running up to 150 power, but on, on Jupiter or Saturn, sometimes I'll run a little bit more. So we were looking at Saturn the other night at 150 power and it was, it was undulating a fair bit. We could see some good detail, but it was, uh, it was difficult to study it for any length of time. Cause it was kind of, uh, you know, sort of swimming in the atmosphere. Let's see, uh, saw a great sketch. I'm on the RESC sketchers list and Jerry, had posted a, a sketch from the uh, double shadow transit on the 18th and, and 19th of October. And it, great, great sketch. What he does is he he makes an oval out of, he has like a plastic container that he squishes to make the oval of Jupiter. Because I was asking him, usually when I draw Jupiter, I just take one of my circle graphics and draw the circle. But he carefully and and with great practice over many years, can can look at Jupiter and then squeeze a plastic container and draw the oval. And then uh, he put the moons in using whiteout. Like he used like drops of whiteout for the moons. So they kind of stand up and have this 3D type of effect, which is pretty cool. Mm. And he blacks out all the white paper around it using at first like a Sharpie just to kind of trace like a like an outline around the objects very carefully and then he takes like a jumbo blackie marker black marker and and just kind of goes goes back and forth and uh and you know really makes the whole scene pop pretty cool interesting technique yeah yeah never never seen that before and then uh, jim who's who's a listener he sent us images uh that were captured in an eight inch telescope showing uh the transit so I thought thought those were pretty cool. Not sure if you had a chance to look at those, Shane. Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah, they were great photos. Um, I I have a real appreciation for planetary astrophotographers. Um, there's there's a lot of you know, well, I guess computer effort that goes into it, but you know, capturing thousands and thousands of frames and then having the software select which ones are the best and then stacking them and creating these wonderful images. Uh, I always appreciate that. Yeah, what stuck out to me was like the tonal differences between the uh, the moon, one of the moons in particular, and the bands on the planet. So he he captured, uh, I think, Ganymede, and it was uh, sort of like this beigey gray, which was sort of deeper in tone than uh, than any of the bands of the planet. 
So I thought that was that was kind of neat because when I've looked at it, it looks to my eye, it looks white, more white. So hmm. anyway, it's kind of yeah, kind of cool. Yeah, you know, for me, it depends a lot on the seeing. Like when the seeing is poor, I feel like it takes on a more of a white tone. When the seeing is is pretty good, I I get more of that creamy, you know, kind of more edging to the brown side of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what is, so Jupiter's in opposition, what is opposition and what makes it a good time to, uh, to observe Jupiter? Well, essentially it's, uh, like the closest to us. Um, so it's opposite, um, opposite the sun, but closest to us. And, uh, I think at, at opposition, it's right overhead at midnight as well, and sort of signifies the transition to becoming more of an evening object as opposed to like a you know, late night or early morning object. Yeah. So at opposition, it's, it's, uh, pretty much at the meridian at midnight. And so you're going to see it rising at sunset and setting at, at sunrise. And to me, anyway, it always marks the time at which it becomes more visible where you don't have to either get up in the early morning or in the middle of the night to, uh, to get it when it's highest, uh, in the night sky. Now it's, going to be at its highest point when it's in the evening sky. So it's going to be fairly high now going forward uh, as it's getting dark. Maybe I'll do some Jupiter observing because I think the, when the weather gets colder and I'm only out for a short period of time, then uh, sometimes it could be a little bit more convenient to uh, to take a look at the planets, to say the least. Mm-hmm, for sure. So some of the, what's that? Uh, I just said, for sure. <laughs> okay, good stuff. Sometimes uh, what you can see is the, you know, through a decent telescope, you can see the bands, uh, but you can see the moons just through binoculars. If people just take their binoculars out and take a look at Jupiter, they'll be able to see those, uh, uh, those moons surrounding the planet. Uh, you can see uh, Io, Ganymede, Callisto, and Europa. And then uh, if you do point a telescope at it, you can start to pull out the bands. Uh, I think even a small telescope should be able to see them. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, a 60 millimeter can reveal the bands. And even with my little 50 millimeters, um, you can kind of make out more, more of the prominent features, um, not with great detail, but it's certainly there. Yeah. November 5th, we have the last quarter moon. So that's when the, uh, the moon is starting to leave the sky. I was looking to see when sort of the first night that you can get uh, some decent uh, couple hours observing in now that we're we're into the dark season where it's getting dark so early and in fact you can get i think on the third of november for us anyway shane you can get uh, about three hours of dark sky observing hmm. two days before the last quarter wow well that's pretty good um i i, I assume also that's uh, earlier in the evening too. So you wouldn't have to stay up too late. Well, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So sunset, I think is at five 30 or something like that. And then, uh, and then it's fully dark by, uh, I think it's about 20 to seven. And then the moon doesn't even get to the horizon until about nine 30. So you, you pretty much have three solid hours that you can observe on the third that's on the third of November. So two solid days before last quarter so then by last quarter you've you've probably got uh you know just about another hour still so yeah you can get lots of observing in this autumn if if you have the skies and and the weather hopefully it doesn't get too cold here 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, right now, it's looking pretty good for this time of the year, actually. We're we're uh, a little bit warmer than we usually are. Yeah, it's too bad. It was it was 22 degrees here on Thursday, and then the forecast is by Wednesday, uh, a daytime high of negative 2 and a low of negative 11. So uh, for those keeping track, when we wake up on Thursday morning, this coming week, uh, it will be 33 degrees colder than the daytime high uh, the previous Thursday or something like that. Pretty big temperature swings here, so wild. Uh, on November 6th, we have the moon, Regulus, and Venus congregating in the dawn sky. So in the morning, uh, might make a good uh, photographic opportunity. Yeah, yeah, neat uh, collection of, you know, moon, star, planet. Uh, yeah, that would be really nice. November 9th, Venus will be within one degree of the moon and it's an occultation for northern canada iceland greenland northern europe and and some other places there so i think that'll be pretty cool to see so november 9th you can set your alarm for 6 a.m or maybe just before and uh go out and take a look at the moon and venus but i i almost think at that close range considering how bright both those targets are might need at least, uh, well, I think binoculars would probably make uh, for a good view, maybe a small telescope, uh, even binoculars for sure. You'd be able to see the moon and Venus together in the sky. Yeah, definitely. And if you're using a telescope or even some higher powered binoculars, uh, look for the phase of Venus as well. Um, I always like when Venus is close to the moon, particularly when both are in phase, um, because sometimes they look like kind of twins, except one is much larger than the other. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point. I'm just, I'm going to take my, I wonder what a phase, I wonder how close the phase is to being like one of those gibbous uh, type phases here. I got, I got Venus here. Now I'm just going to take a, a bit of a zoom in, unless you know what, what the phase is. No, looks no, like I right don't. Off the, no. Right off the top of your head. Yeah. I just thought that maybe I would give it a, give it a quick search here. Of course, like whenever you try to use software, when you're chatting live, it it never uh, seems to work very well, does it? For some for some strange reasons. So, like, even though I do all these searches pretty frequently, like oh yeah. So it's it's uh, just about half phase, maybe just a little less. And then the moon is just this sliver on that morning. It looks pretty pretty spectacular, even in the software. But when you when you're zoomed out in the software, the uh, it's going to be neat to see as it looks like Venus kind of overwhelms the moon mm -hmm. that morning for us. So yeah, I'll be kind of curious to, to see what it looks like. So for us, Shane, just so you know, you want to try to get this um, right as soon as Venus is rising. So for us here in mountain time, we're looking at getting, uh, getting this at about 4am is probably the best best point when they are the closest and then for places like uh that are east of us like ontario or the eastern seaboard of the u.s they're going to have uh have a slightly better chance getting it uh, very very close but for us i think it's like a degree and a half away when it rises and for anybody who's further east of saskatchewan then you're going to have a pretty good uh view of these objects of venus and the moon really close in the nighttime sky should be pretty cool yeah definitely uh, November 12th, the North Torrid Meteors Peak. So this is a meteor shower. 
And the radiant, that's the point at which the meteors seem to emanate, comes from uh, just below the Pleiades, uh, the M45 cluster. And you get about uh, five to 10 meteors per hour. You know, I was looking this one up, Shane, and of course, uh, Don McColls, who uh, passed away um, last year, unfortunately, uh, it, it's kind of sad. He he was on the show a couple times, but he was a big uh, fan of meteor showers and had done uh, lots of writing about meteor showers. And when I look up the meteor showers, I often find his articles uh, about the meteors because he was a comet hunter and uh, he he uh, wrote a lot of articles about like the uh, progenitor uh, comets and asteroids for uh, for different meteor showers. So it's kind of neat to run into that information. Yeah, for sure. He uh, he talks about asteroid 2004 TG10 as the meteor shower's parent body, and he goes on to talk about how 20,000 years ago a larger object broke up, creating a comet Enki, which is now visible, strangely enough, uh, over in Leo in the morning sky. And some other asteroids, uh, as well as meteor showers, have been traced back to comet Enki. So scientists uh, named this group uh, the Comet Enki Group basically, uh, or the common Enki complex after the uh, common Enki. So yeah, kind of need to, uh, to go out and take, take a look at, uh, at those objects Saturday, um, or sorry, November 13th, that's going to be our new moon. So sort of eyes on the sky for that. But I noticed our, our new moon weekend, I think it's like Saturday, the 11th, the weekend of the 10th, 11th, 12th kind of thing. That's uh, probably your best uh, new moon weekend. And then the following weekend uh, is also pretty good. You know, it always seems like we have some years where the way the the new moon falls, you only get one weekend out of the month that is a good weekend for going out to dark skies. But uh, this November and and this past October, we've we've had a couple weekends. So the following Saturday, November eighteenth, that's when the leaning meteor shower peaks, Leonid meteor shower. Uh, no outburst is expected, but you can still see 15 to 20 meteors per hour. And again, kind of referring back to Don McColl's notes, uh, he talks about Comet Temple Tuttle, officially known as 55P Temple Tuttle, is responsible for the Leonid meteor shower. And uh, that was discovered by William Temple in Marseille, France. And uh, he discovered that on December 19th, 1965, that comet. Uh, but it was lost for many years and then recovered in 1965. Uh, but the comet can be as faint as like uh, 16th magnitude. The, the Leonid meteor shower is is most famous for this sort of every 33-year uh, periodic meteoric outburst that can happen where you can get thousands of meteors per hour. Uh, but it, the the meteors associated with the, the Leonid meteor shower are very bright. They they sometimes are referred to as the uh, the November fireballs uh, for that. So even though there's just 15 to 20 per hour, they're quite bright. And I have to say, being out observing uh, quite a bit over the past uh, couple months, uh, there has been a lot of meteors. So typically in an evening, uh, without sitting back and looking for meteors, I'm probably seeing about, I'm going to say between three to five an hour on average. So things are pretty active uh, right now between the Orionids, the Torids, um, and several other sort of minor showers. It's it's just a very active time for meteor showers. Hmm. Yeah, that's quite a rate. Uh, you know, three to five per hour without really looking for them is is a lot of activity. Yeah. Yeah, we're seeing quite uh, quite a bit, sometimes very bright. I, I walked out on my deck one night and just looked up and there was this huge bolide that went 
right across the eastern sky. Just spectacular. And my neighbors are up the hill having a fire. I'm sure they were like, there's Chris out again yelling at the sky. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Anyway. So November 20th, uh, Saturn Saturn is three degrees north of the first quarter moon. So that might be nice in binoculars and a small telescope as well, eh? Oh, definitely. Yeah, that's another uh, another thing to put on your calendar. Yeah, that's really good. I'm going to try to take a look at some of these. Sorry, I accidentally hit my mute button there. Uh, once we once we get around to November, see, we get into this colder weather, minus 10, minus 15 at night, typically. If we're lucky, it's that warm. Uh, last year, we were not. Remember that? Um, Mars was coming up to opposition. I remember I was out in, in November taking, or in uh, October, taking some peaks of Mars, getting all set to do lots of Mars observing, and then... We had the polar vortex move in for a few weeks and it uh, maybe even a month. And remember that it went down to like minus 30 for, I think like three or four weeks or something like that. It was just brutal. Yeah. We, we really didn't have a, a graceful transition to winter last year. It just all of a sudden was very, very cold. Yeah. Yeah. Like literally the, the, uh, I think the second week of November, it went down so cold and you just couldn't, you couldn't even think about going out and observing because not sometimes it can be cold here but very still and steady. And you can kind of dress up really warm and go out and you can be out for an hour or so, maybe even two hours at minus 30. But, uh, but last year, holy, we had so much wind with it that it was like minus 30, but minus 45 with the wind chill. It was just, uh, just unbearable. I went out and watched the occultation of Mars by the moon. And even that night it was it had warmed up to minus 18 or minus 19, but it was still like minus 27 with the wind chill. And that, that's sort of my limit. So we just did driveway observing, but November 25th, um, sorry, November 22nd, Neptune, Neptune is going to be 1.5 degrees North of the moon. So that could be a great time to spot it on November 25th. Jupiter is going to be three degrees South of the moon. And then on November 27th, uh, the moon is going to be just over one degree south of the Pleiades or the Pleiades M45. So with uh, your binoculars, you can go check out the moon next to all these planets. And I really like it because I can often see the moon uh, when it's pairing up with some of this stuff, like through a window in my house or or wherever I'm at. And so I don't have to go out and brave the cold, or if I do, I can just step outside. And I'm really excited this year because I finally went and took your advice, Shane, and bought a pair of those uh, image stabilized binoculars, which I've been making good use of. So I'm really excited for watching uh, all these pairings coming up with those should be pretty great. Oh, definitely. And, you know, those, those type of or, or binoculars in general, uh, really become a useful tool when the temperatures drop, you know, when things start to get cold, you may not want to, you know, drag gear like telescopes and tripods and all of that kind of stuff inside and outside and then let them cool and all of that. Um, you know, the binoculars are just so quick and easy. You can run outside, have some quick views, do short sessions or even long sessions. Um, they're just so adaptable. And I, I really tend to use binoculars a lot more when the temperatures drop. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to all these pairings of, of the planets and, and the moon and maybe some of these meteor showers. Cause sometimes you can kind of get yourself warmed up, bundled up really good. And when you don't have to worry about lugging gear or taking gloves off or anything, um, just grab that reclining lawn chair, go out, plop it down, and 
and look up. Uh, just make sure you can get to a dark sky site. But uh, when you when your only piece of gear maybe is the the chair and a pair of binoculars, um, you know, you go throw that in your car and and drive out, plop down for half an hour and see what you can see just in that uh, span of time. So I, I may even do that uh, a couple of times as well, so long as the snow isn't too bad. Mm-hmm. All right, a couple of comments. Uh, I meant to put comment Enki in here as well, but uh, maybe I'll just look that up. Uh, Mike and I spent a long time looking for this comment 12P uh, Ponds Brooks. I'm sure if you've read about this one, uh, has had some outbursts recently. Yeah, yeah, I've noticed some attention uh, being directed towards it. So, uh, you know, comet hunters pay attention. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. Like, I mean, what did you read? Cause I read a few things, but what did, what did you read about it? Um, well, just that it has some potential to, uh, to brighten up. Is it this, is this the one that is later? Yeah. Like a 2024 potential target. Yeah. It must be because I mean, yeah. I, I was reading that it that it's been having some outbursts. However, however, I think the outbursts were taking it from like I don't know whatever it was magnitude thirteen to magnitude eleven, which is significant because if it was magnitude ten and went to something like magnitude seven or eight, that would be a huge jump taking it from telescopic to very easily binocular uh, range. Um, but in Mike's 12 inch, we, we didn't see it. And I spent a long time hunting it down in my four inch and probably too much time. And I, I kind of sort of think we saw it, but you know what, an 11th man, 11, it was supposed to be 11.3 magnitude when we were looking at it. You, you know what that would look like in a four inch telescope? Not a whole mm-hmm. lot. Eh? No, no. Especially when it's not a single point of light, you know, it would be dispersed a little bit being it's a comet. Um, yeah, the uh, what I was reading was that uh, like by March, April of 2024, this might turn into a naked eye comet. Um, some of the forecasts are saying magnitude four or five. So mm-hmm. it's one to keep uh, like keep aware of and just see if it does start to match some of these magnitude forecasts, uh, because if it does get that bright, um, you know, it'll be uh, it'll be talked about a lot and it'll be probably a good opportunity to to get out and, and see, a, you know, hopefully an interesting comet. Um, and for us, I think it'll be an evening comet too, but, um, the, uh, yeah, the, the recent outbursts really kind of spiked that magnitude and, uh, it looks like kind of around January timeframe is when things will really start picking up again for it. Yeah. We'll just have to watch and, and see it. Uh, it had sort of caught my attention. So we went out and tried to look for it in the scopes. But I, I can't say we really had much success. Uh, just getting back, Comet Enki, we talked about um, the uh, North Torrids being associated with Comet Enki as, as well as some other uh, details. So it, it was best observable in October, you know, the current month that we're recording this uh, this in. And uh, it's going to be down in Virgo or just below by the time this comes out. And it was supposed to be 7.5 magnitude in October, but I don't know that I ever get that bright, and I never uh, did take a peek at it. I kind of wish I did now. Uh, I'll take a try to take a peek at it once we get into new new moon in uh, in November. Hopefully, if it's not uh, too low there, but probably it'll be around tenth magnitude by then, I suppose. Um, yeah, so you might be able to hunt that one down, Kamenenki, if you have an eight inch or larger telescope. Mm-hmm. Any any other comet news that I've missed on this one, Shane? I don't think anything for the near term. 
Um, but going into 2024, there's, uh, like we talked about Ponds Brooks potentially, you know, becoming a naked eye, but we will, we'll wait to see what really happens there. Um, there's a number of like, you know, magnitude seven to nine comets, uh, on the list for 2024 that look pretty interesting. And then there's a, uh, in November eighth, it's a C 2023, a three, Oof, I'm not going to say this very well. Suchinchen Atlas uh, that okay. is also forecasted right now, you know, to be magnitude four, actually magnitude zero, uh, which, which would be something else. Um, uh, When's yeah. that one in January? Uh, October is magnitude is, is the forecasted brightest point at, for at next zero. year. That's right, twelve months oh. from now. Yeah. Oh. All right. Well, so just oh. uh, you know, we'll keep a watch on these and see what happens. Yeah, I'll try not to get my hopes up too much for that. All right, <laughs> good stuff. Any uh, double stars or anything that uh, that are on your list for uh, this coming November if you get out? Uh, yeah, I don't have them in front of me, though, unfortunately. Um, just continuing with the uh, RASC double star observing list. Um, there's a number of uh, good fall pairings that um, if you haven't checked them out, I would say take a look. Uh, there's a lot of good ones. Hey, um, so dear listeners, please subscribe and do us a favor and share the show with other stargazers. You know, you can always send us your show ideas, observations, and questions to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>